Okay, Faces in the Crowd is the name of the sermon topic this morning. First, uh, let's talk about Palm Sunday. Let's define it the way most people define it. It's the Sunday before Easter, commemorating Christ's entry into Jerusalem when crowds laid palm branches before him. That's the synthesized version of Palm Sunday. It's the surface understanding that most people have of what happened one day in April 33 AD in the city of Jerusalem. And that's what the casual observers saw. But just below the surface, there was an explosion of biblical, religious, prophetic, political dynamics taking place that morning. We'll look, we'll look at the events and the personalities that stood as faces in the crowd on that fateful day. And we'll begin with the Palm Sunday account found in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read the account in Luke chapter 19. And it will be our text and where we get the uh, stuff that we're getting in the sermon this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when the disciples had thus spoken, when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up into Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, and in the which, at, in the which you are entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do ye this? Why do you loose him? And thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the, colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Amen to that and amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Each of the four Gospels reveal those in the crowd shouting Hosanna, which means save us now were a, a diverse group. They were Jews, they were Gentiles, they were average citizens, they were political and religious leaders. All of them came to see Jesus. He was the big attraction on this day. He was the one that everybody wanted to see. In fact, not only that, so many people just wanted to touch him. Remember the account, and it's a tender account, of a woman who had some kind of, let's call it cancer of the blood, leukemia, something like that. And she wanted just the opportunity to touch Jesus because she knew after she'd gone to so many doctors and spent so much money that she couldn't get a cure out of any of these folks, out of any of these things. But she heard that Jesus was the great healer. And so she went when she heard that Jesus was in town. And there was a huge crowd gathered around Jesus. And as she went, she made her way. And all of a sudden she realized that she couldn't do it by standing up, and so she had to crawl between their legs to get around them. Now, you can imagine this great, if you've ever been on a New York City subway at rush hour, I have and Jean has, and feel the crush of people 
the fact that somebody's pushing you, is you can't distinguish it from all the other people. But when this lady reached out in faith and touched just the hem of Jesus' robe, Jesus stopped and said, somebody touched me. And his disciples looked at him and said, yeah, I know. What do you mean? No, no, no. When that person touched me, they touched me in faith. And when they touched me in faith, I felt the healing go out. And that lady was healed just to touch Jesus. Throughout his three-year ministry, Jesus went out of his way to avoid the adoration of crowds. The prophet Isaiah's words regarding the coming Messiah's public demeanor, not to be a showman, are spelled out in Matthew 12, 19. It says, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to advertise. He's not going to let, he's not going to put banners up. He's not going to put flyers up saying, Jesus is coming. The fact that he's coming, people will spread by word of mouth. Jesus wasn't about public displays or mob rebellion. Jesus wasn't about those things. So why was he riding through the dusty streets of Jerusalem at that moment in his ministry? Why was he doing this? Well, there's two reasons. Reason number one, to do God's will. To do God's will. John 6, 38, For I came from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. I wish that that was my prayer, and I wish that that was your prayer, that we would do what God would have us to do, and follow in those things. Paul restates Jesus' words by recording or re-recording a prophecy concerning the Messiah found in Psalm 40. He writes in Hebrews 10, 7, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus knew why he came into the earth. He came to do exactly what the Father had wanted him to do. And he responded to the Father. Now he knew that he was revealing the details of that plan. Just by riding into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, he was doing what his Father wanted to do. He's motivated by and submitted to his father's plan as revealed in his word. Which brings us to reason number two, to fulfill Bible prophecy. Matthew 26, 56, Jesus says, but all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And he will, he will satisfy more than half of those just by breathing on the planet just by being alive. What were some of the prophecies being satisfied with each hoofbeat of the colt as it, came, as it carried Jesus on that faithful day? Well, here's three. Three, just small ones, not huge ones that I could tell you, but just three small ones. Prophecy number one, the Messiah would be Jewish. Sounds obvious because we're looking back on it. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of people be. Jacob foresees the promised Messiah would come from the seed of his tribe, Israel, the Jewish people. This Messiah would be a peacemaker. One of his names in the Old Testament is Shiloh, which means peacemaker. This Messiah would gather all people of him to himself, not just those of the tribe of Israel. And on that first Palm Sunday, both Jews and Gentiles were in the crowd to see Jesus. Prophecy number two, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem. 
Now, that doesn't seem like much of a prophecy, but listen to some of the details behind it. 600 years before it happened, God gave the prophet Daniel a vision of the Messiah entering Jerusalem on a date certain. Not just saying, well, one of these days, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem. No, he spelled out a plan, a scheme by which you could actually start, chart, chart the date that would come 600 years later. That date was the date that Jesus rode into the city. The prophecy went on to reveal the Messiah would enter Jerusalem, where in a matter of days he would be killed. Imagine that. Jesus knew all of this. Nevertheless, he got on the back of that colt. Jesus knew all of this. Nevertheless, he, he left the gates and the walls and the beauty and the throne of heaven, coming to know what his end would be. Knowing all of this, he continued to ride. Why didn't he turn back? How many times have you turned back? And how many times have I turned back on the promises we made to God? But Jesus would never turn back. 500 years before it happened, God gave the prophet Zechariah the mode of transportation the Messiah would use to enter Jerusalem. Prophecy number three, that a donkey would carry him. Zechariah 9.9, again, 500 years before it happened. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, riding upon a colt of an ass and the foal of an ass. With the evidence of scripture in their mind and the scene unfolding before their eyes, what kept Israel from receiving the Messiah? With all of this stuff that they knew, and they were religious, so many of them, they knew all of these details about Jesus, and yet they wouldn't accept him. So let's try to find the answer. The answer lies in part in the crowd crying Hosanna in the highest. Who was in the crowd that day? Now, I've had the privilege to, to share this with you over the years. During his three-year ministry, Jesus interacted with members of various political and religious factions, as well as ordinary people. They were all there on that day. They were all faces in the crowd. But each of those folks had an agenda. Each saw Jesus from a different perspective. It was that agenda and that perspective which determined what they would do with Jesus. So who were those faces in the crowd? Here's five. The Galileans were there. These were political activists. Now, we know what political activists are, right? Because they surround us. They're all out there. We see them on television. We hear them. Political activists. It's their life. It's their agenda. It's why they exist. Their motto, the Galileans' motto, was Galilee for the Galileans. They were anti-Rome. They were anti-foreigners in Galilee. Their fanatical political views put them at odds with government officials. Jesus' enemies tried to link Christ to the Galileans in an effort to make him more, no more than a political activist. So many people have that in their head. That, that's all Jesus was. He was a politician. He was a political analyst. People today who miss the ministry message and the person of Jesus when they attempt to connect him to their political party or wrap his word in a flag. Jesus is no political party. Jesus did not come to earth or ride into Jerusalem that day to bring a political solution to human problems. Because the reality is there are no political solutions to human problems. It's too deep-seated in the heart. And who's the person that works from the heart? Jesus. The Pharisees were there. 
They were considered champions and guardians of Israel's written and oral laws. They came into prominence around 100 BC. They became the most bitter, mean-spirited enemies of Jesus. They condemned him for everything. They condemned him for associating with sinners. Well, that's just for Jesus. Well, that's why I came. I came to save the lost. I came for the lowest on the rung. I came for the hurting. I came for the homeless. I came for the helpless. I came for the sinner. So they condemned him for that. They condemned him for healing on the Sabbath. There were no hospitals. There were no doctors in that sense of the word. There was no medication. The only recourse when you, when you were sick was a healer. And the only healer who, who, uh, who healed 100% of the time to make an attempt, every, every person Jesus has ever attempted to heal was healed, amen? They sought to, keep, to trap him on various theological issues. They despised him for refusing to follow their traditions. They denied his miracles even though you could see them. They sought from the earliest days of his ministry with one objective, to kill him. But before they, we dismiss them out of hand, we should understand that there are those who are just like the Pharisees, who would still be angry with Jesus because his words are politically incorrect. He denounced those who could let tradition negate the power of God's word. He denounced the pride and arrogance of false righteousness. He denounced false humility. He denounced false teachers. The problems with Jesus is that he could see beyond the surface and look right into your soul. He could like, look right past your face. He could look and see what no man can see. God, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside, and Jesus is God. The problem with Jesus is he was ushering in a new way to God. One not based on rules, good works, self-effort, or religion. Salvation would come by grace through faith in Christ and nothing else. That goes against the grain of those who think, however sincerely, that they can do it themselves. So much self-help material out there. So many self-help people writing books. And yet, after the book is sold, it becomes a bestseller. After it's been a bestseller, after it's been on a shelf for a while, nobody ever opens the self-book again. Three, the Sadducees were there. The religious aristocrats of Jesus' day. They took their name from Zadok, a high priest during the reign of King Solomon. They were the religious insiders of the day. They were the, they were the ones in the right church, seated in the right pew, and they had been there since birth. It was probably their parents' and their grandparents' church. Everybody else was an outsider. Newcomers would only be welcomed if they met the criteria of, of uh, class and cash. You had to be of a certain ilk. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Anybody can come to Jesus and he would receive them. We may reject people from our churches, but Jesus will not reject, him, reject them from his church. So whose church are we in? The Sanhedrins were there. Number four, the Sanhedrins. They were the mixed races of a bygone time, the outsiders the poorest and most uneducated Jews who had intermarried with non-Jews. They were the different. People looked at them as different. They were held in contempt. They were the nobodies, neither Jew nor Gentile. 
They were the least of humans, and they were people with a past. They were the forgotten. They were the untouchables. To be called a Samaritan would be to use a profanity. If you call somebody a Samaritan, it was the dirtiest, worst thing you could say. But then came Jesus. He walked among them. He ministered to them. A Samaritan was a hero in one of his parables. When he healed ten lepers, the only one who turned around and gave him thanks was a Samaritan. Because of Jesus, when you hear the name Samaritan, you think, good Samaritan. You hear the name Samaritan, you think Samaritan Hospital, Samaritan's Purse. You see Jesus' ministry and Jesus' truth and Jesus' way was the way for all people, no matter who, to experience God's touch. A new life, a second chance, a new beginning. And people are desperate for that. People are desperate for a second chance. We all need one. And Jesus is willing to give us a second and a third. Number five, the Sanhedrin were there. Well, these were the high council, the supreme court for both religious and legal matters. These were Mr. Big of their time. Whatever they say, went. There were 71 members, a high priest, who was president. The others were priests, scribes, that's what experts in religious law, lawyers and elders. This is a setup. There were the men, these were the men who entered, who, who were entrusted to render justice. But when they tried Jesus, justice was no place to be found. The Sanhedrin normally met in a semicircle with the prisoner standing in the middle so he could see them all. So Jesus would be in the middle. He could look on the faces of all of those who were going to try him. Jesus was blindfolded. Normally, two clerks were present, one to record acquittal, the other for conviction. At Jesus' trial, no clerks were present. Normally, arguments for acquittal were given first. At Christ's trial, there were no arguments for acquittal. If, acquittal, if acquitted, the prisoner was set free immediately. If convicted, the prison, prisoner was sentenced the following day. When Christ was convicted, he was sentenced immediately. So much for justice. So much for judges. So much for fairness. So much for the law and lawyers. Jesus' law was the law of love. Jesus' law was the law of forgiveness. Against those laws, no other law can stand. The law binds, the law brings death. Grace, mercy, and love bring life. And as I said before, a second chance. A small wonder that in a matter of days it was a crowd that would praise him and another crowd that would call for his crucifixion. We are not called to follow the crowd. Salvation is not found by following the majority of thought, the power of the state, the banner of, the banner of religion. It is found by following the lone rider of the dusty streets of Jerusalem. Following him is not a matter of of laying palm branches at his feet. Rather, it's laying our life at his feet. Our gifts, our resources, our will, our ways at his feet. Following him is more than words of praise. It involves lives of praise. What will you do with Jesus? 
Jesus was rejected 2,000 years ago for the same reasons he's rejected today. Pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, ignorance, hatred, disbelief, and sin. Those in the crowd who plotted and planned to get rid of Jesus assumed they were in control of Jesus' destiny. Imagine. They assumed they had a surprise in store for Jesus when this ride through Jerusalem was finished. But unseen by them was another face in the crowd, the unseen face of Jesus' Father, Father God, looking at the whole situation and looking at these people. Because Almighty God was there, everything was under control. Amen? Mark 10, 32 to 34. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed. As they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and they shall kill him. This is before it all happened. This is Jesus looking there, his apostles, his disciples in the eye and saying, let me let you in on the account. Let me tell you the rest of the story. We're going up to Jerusalem, and all of these things are going to happen. P.S., after they kill me, I'm going to rise from the dead. Here's a story I've read to you on a couple of occasions, but it's oh so worthy of this particular account. Here's the way the news of victory at Waterloo arrived in England. There were no telegrams or telephones in those days, of course, but everyone knew that Wellington was facing Napoleon in a great battle, and the future of England was in great uncertainty. A sailing ship, semaphored, that's the signal with coded flags. The news of the signalman, the news of the signalman on top of Winchester Cathedral. He signaled to another man on a hill. And thus news of the battle was relayed by semaphore from station to station to London and all across the land. When the ship came in, the signalman on board semaphored the first word, Wellington. The next word was defeated. And then the fog came down, and the ship could not be seen. And all that was left for the people to digest were two words, Wellington defeated. It took the heart out of the English people that their hero was defeated by Napoleon. After two or three hours, the fog lifted, and the signal came again. Wellington defeated the enemy. Then all of England rejoiced. There was that day when they put the body of the Lord in the tomb and the message appeared to be Christ defeated. And three days later, the fog lifted. Christ defeated sin, Satan, death, and the cross. Praise God, he lives. And we will celebrate with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the crowning truth that Jesus suffered, bled, and died. But in the process, he defeated death. He gave victory over sin and death and Satan and all the aspects of life that would defeat us. And we don't have to be defeated, Lord, because we are victorious through the victory of Jesus Christ.
And we pray, Father, as this week goes on, that we might have the courage to invite folks to hear the gospel on Sunday morning, that we would have the ability to be able to reach out to folks and share the gospel on our own. Help us to pray this week and keep focused and focus our minds on what Jesus has done for us to give us life eternal so that one day we will be with him and reign with him in Jesus' name. Amen.